Hello, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers Festival. I hope you enjoy this conversation from our podcast series. Thank you so much for coming. <laughs> Amazing. Um, hello and welcome to Sydney Writers Festival 2022. I am, sadly, not the tall, elegant, articulate Julia Baird. I am, she couldn't be with us tonight. I really apologise. My name is Catherine Milne. I'm five foot one and a half and I am the flustered <laughs> late stand-in. So, look, you know... Anything could happen tonight. Um, I'm Head of Fiction at HarperCollins, and I am delighted to welcome you all to this session tonight with Trent Dalton and Brendan Cowell. Oh, man. Thank you so much. I, I needed that. Thank you. It's a long story, but thank you. I can pretty much promise you tonight that we are going to have a lot of fun, um, uh, quite a few laughs, maybe a few tears, possibly a few poems, and who knows, an impromptu therapy session. So let's just roll with it and let's see what happens. Um, I also have to say at this point, many thanks to the sponsors who have made this event tonight possible, Rosie Williams and John Grill. I'd like to begin our evening by a acknowledging the original storytellers, the traditional owners of the country on which we are meeting today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And I'd like to recognise their continuing, uh, continuing connection to land, sea, community and culture. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Now, Trent Dalton, Walkley Award-winning journalist and, of course, the author of the multi-award-winning international best-selling novels, Boy Swallows Universe and All Our Shimmering Skies, and the book that we will be talking about tonight, which has just been named Indie Book of the Year for 2022, a book that saw Trent sitting on a street corner in Brisbane collecting love stories from strangers. Um, and ending up with this heartfelt, deep and wise book about the thing we all need, the thing we can't live without, and that is love. <laughs> so, Trent, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> um, can I say how amazing it is to have Catherine Mill here? That she's the woman who kind of made that... Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, you. she's done so much for frickin' books in this country. You're an angel, um, you're a goddess, and you're frickin' brilliant, and it's so cool to be doing this okay. with you. And she made that book happen, so <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Um, I'd also like to introduce Brendan Cowell. Now, he is speaking to us from his living room. He's joining us by Zoom because he's in COVID ISO. How on point and topical. He is the award-winning writer, actor, and director for television, theatre, and film, and just some of his accomplishments include writing the smash hit play Reuben Guthrie. He was the writer, as some of you may remember, on the acclaimed TV series Love My Way, in which he also starred. He won an actor Best Screenplay Prize for his episode of the multi-award-winning series The Slap. He's been named the leading light amongst playwrights of his generation, and he is about to start as John Proctor in The Crucible in uh, the National Theatre in London. Um, his most recent novel, Plum, this beautiful book here, is a big-hearted, raucous, invigorating and moving and joyous novel about men, broken men, their inarticulate pain and how they can save them from themselves. So please, make both Brendan and Trent welcome. <laughs> Brendan! <laughs> Hello, do I look down? Hello. <laughs> uh, great to be here. Sorry to everybody I can't be here uh, in person and to anybody who bought tickets for last night. Um, I so wanted to be uh, with you, but, I, but I'm on a screen. I'm on a screen um, behind the action. Brendan Swallows, you know, writer. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan uh, Swallow Screen. <laughs> yeah. Now, I think I'm right by saying that both of these books came out of COVID in a way. So let's take that as our starting point. Brendan, I'm going to kick off with you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your novel Plum and where you wrote it and why you wrote it? Yeah, well, it's kind of um, timely that I have this um, virus that has um, deemed me far from unique, which I often think I am. Because uh, it was two two years ago in in London, um, 
you know, when I wrote this book and uh, I was in a lockdown there for about five months, I'd had a bit of a breakup. I had the virus. There were mice in my flat and um, I'd had some kind of, uh, I'd had difficulty with pitching television shows and um, my, my writing agent and manager in LA and and England had fired me and and I thought, God, am I even a writer anymore? And I had this time where the dance of acting and auditions and where am I going and what's happening had stopped and I thought I want to reclaim why I write and find out if I still am a writer. Um, and I had a bit of money from acting and I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to write something just for me. And I thought, why, did, why do I write? When did I start? And I started writing poems. Um, when I was 11 or 12, I wrote a poem um, called Staring at Puddles and showed my mum and my nan. And, um, you know, when I had a bit of bullying stuff, when I was a bit, you know, sad as a, as, as a young man growing up in Cronulla, um, I wrote poems. And I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write something. And I, I put on a night called Poems for Pause um, for the koalas after the bushfires. And it was so amazing to hear people all walks of life read their own poetry. And I thought, well, who is the last person to be saved by poetry? Um, and that's when I came up with Peter the Plum Lum, a kind of battered ex-footy player. And I thought if this bloke can end up writing a poem and saving himself, I might have a book. It's, it'll be very funny and very tragic. And he goes on a process of kind of finding out about himself because if he doesn't change, he's going to die. Uh, he has an accident. He works at Qantas on the um, on the tarmac, dragging the planes out, and he has an epileptic fit as a result of the head knocks he's, he's um, had on field. Um, and he nearly drags a plane into another plane. Finds out he's got a degenerative brain injury, and that if he doesn't stop his lifestyle, which um, you know he has a soft sand jog in the morning, he goes to work, but then with his three other ex athlete mates, he'll drink between three and thirty schooners in the pub in the afternoon, and. He's got his girlfriend. He's got a son who's who wants to follow in his footsteps, and that kind of is um, pecking away at him as well because he's starting to wonder if the game that gave him everything um, is what he wants his son to do. Um, so f- suddenly, this man who's only ever known never take a backward step—it's what his dad taught him: never take a backward step. He's run through walls in in relationships and everything on field and off field. He now has to turn around, feel stuff. Um, and acquiesce and put his ego down and change. Um, and, and that's where the poetry kind of comes in. Beautiful. And we'll talk a lot about poetry and dead poets and what happens to Plum a little bit later. But for now, Trent, a COVID was also oh, yeah. a factor in why you wrote love stories, wasn't it? It was, I think <laughs> you said it was your gentle middle finger to the pandemic. Oh, my absolute middle finger. Sorry, oh, middle finger to the pandemic. And um, yeah, absolutely, Catherine. It was, it, it was early days, it was overthinking just thinking too much and worry and worried about my kids, worried about my wife. And you know what? I'm just going to do something with all of this stuff inside me. And, um, you know, at an extraordinary series of events occurred, goes way back to like 2006, living in Dara um, on the sort of outer suburbs of Brisbane. And I get a letter in the mail uh, typed in Olivetti font um, and it's, uh, it's from my best mate, Greg's mum. Uh, hi, Trent, it's Kathleen Kelly here. Um, I just wanted to say that recent article in the Courier-Mail was glorious. And, uh, and, and then thus started this incredible uh, series of sort of beautiful correspondence with this woman named Kathleen Kelly, who was kind of always saying to me, there's more in you, there's more in you, there's more in you. Um, Kathleen Kelly... Um, this beautiful human being who did nothing, um, who loved nothing more than tapping away on her Olivetti typewriter letters to popes, letters to school principals, (laughs) fighting for women's rights, human rights. Um, The most inspiring lady. Um, Yeah, she died. She died on uh, Christmas Day 2020. Mm. And and, um, we go to the funeral in like high summer heat in Brisbane, um, you know, around January 6th. Um, and incredible funeral, incredible funeral. I was there with my wife and my eldest daughter, Beth, um, who's best friends with Greg's daughter. We're sitting there, and the photo montage. You know, the photo, you know those photo montages? You know, that phenomenon, that, that recent phenomenon where you get to see an entire life roll out before you, and it's the most emotive and emotional thing you're ever going to see. 
And I looked around as this thing's going, and there were latecomers struggling to get seats in the funeral hall. And I said to myself, God damn, you did it. You did it, Kathleen. You lived life so good and so right. And you did everything so right that latecomers couldn't find a seat at your funeral. And uh, we go outside, and as per Kathleen's instructions, on her deathbed, she said to Greg, um, I've got 36 cans of Forex gold in the fridge. I want you guys to drink them all in the car park, you know, after my funeral. Go out baking heat, we're drinking Forex gold cans. Um, and, and I said to Greg, hey, mate, I don't know if you know how many letters she sent me sort of making me become a better writer or go deeper or share more. Go, you know, don't be afraid to give. And, um, and I, I said, mate, well, she meant the world to me. And he said, I'll wait till you see this. And he opens up the back of his Subaru where the beers were. And uh, he doesn't pull out a beer. He pulls out a sky blue Olivetti typewriter. And, uh, and, and he's like, her deathbed request... I'm getting emotional. <laughs> her deathbed request was that you have it. And uh, it was freaking beautiful. And my kids started crying, my wife started crying, and, you know, deep in COVID. We were in COVID, and we hit Queensland had a bit of a bout of COVID. It was like just a small, like, three-day lockdown. <laughs> so, I know. Ugh, I know, I know. So I don't complain, I don't complain. And uh, I phoned my mate, Cal, and uh, Greg, and I said, hey, man, I've just been thinking about that typewriter, and I want to do something beautiful with it. And I've decided I know what I want to do. I, I want to get a sign... I want to get it two chairs, a desk, and uh, the sign's going to say, Sentimental Writer Collecting Love Stories, Do You Have One to Share? And I sat on the corner of Adelaide and Albert Street uh, for two months, just asking 200 strangers to share their love stories with me, and it was the most profound and moving thing I have ever done in my life. Yeah. We will talk much more. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We will talk much more about love stories later. I just want to take a little step back um, to talk about sometimes why we find it so hard to talk about love. And Brendan, you wrote something about your novel. You, you wrote, it breaks my heart when I see blokes border up the heart and turn to booze and bitterness to get through the hard stuff. What is it about Australian men in particular, that they find so hard to express emotions, that they wall themselves up behind this barricade of beer and uh, backslaps and bravado? What is it, do you reckon? Well, you know, I, I think it's also, it's part of um, what you're kind of taught um, in a lot of ways, it is to be tough um, and not to show stuff and um, to walk through walls and stuff, especially in kind of suburban upbringings, I'd say. I'd say Trent and I um, have some pretty good access to emotion, maybe a bit too much. I don't, I've, I've been accused of in relationships. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I also think, you know, it's hard for everybody. I've been in a lot of relationships with women who struggle to, to, to emote and, and, and that can come because there's trauma and all sorts of things. But... I think there has to be some kind of moratorium on the whole thing because, you know, it's, um, I just don't, I, I find it kind of, um, I just don't tolerate it anymore. I don't think there's any excuse anymore um, to just swallow it all up with booze and react and, and, and for it to come out in all these different ways. We have to communicate. We've got this one life. Um, and that's kind of what the Peter Lum story is. He's, a, he's 49 and he could have a second go. And, and that's why I thought it was a really good age in that way. It's like there is a second chapter out of there where you can turn around um, and have a look at your life and start communicating stuff. And I don't know if men will ever stand in a circle and talk about their feelings. That's why I thought, you know, in How It Feels, I think I wrote about that. And, and then in this book I thought, because I've always got a dramatic question, you know, I don't always know the answer when I'm writing, but I always have a question that I can follow there's probably something I'm asking myself, and that is why can't men do it? And I thought men are poets, you know, and, and, and they're poets on the field and, and they can be beautiful in so many ways. And so I thought maybe men can communicate with themselves. Um, and that's what I was kind of challenging Peter Lum to do and, and maybe men to do is, is to start inventory or writing little poems down because everyone's a poet, you know. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't really know the answer because I, I think it's a human thing though, but, um, you know, I think it's probably time that the new notion of toughness is reaching out when you're stressed and, you know, you're taking drugs or you're having an affair or you're worried or you're paranoid or you're anxious 
um, instead of bottling that up as toughness, um, I'd say putting your hand up um, is probably the idea of toughness that we should present. Yeah. Uh, Trent, in Love Stories, you have a chapter entitled The Story of Why I Reckon My Old Man Was Not Much of a Hugger, which I think is probably one of the best chapter titles ever, in which you write, he'd always pull away from the hug before it got too close. And even when I was 10 years old, I knew why he was pulling away. I knew he wanted me to know that life was not tender and soft and gentle. Life was rock hard and terrifying and tenderness was folly. Don't start crying, don't start hugging, don't start feeling because you might never stop feeling. Do you want to tell us the story oh, of your man. old man and the hug? Don't do that to me. <laughs> uh, no, no, I mean, and that's just kidding because I would freaking adore talking about that guy. Um, just as this wonderful man, Brendan, was talking there and I was just absolutely getting visions of him. I can't even believe you followed his chat with a question about that. Um, because one thing that Brendan just reminded me of is uh, my old man would sit up at midnight, and uh, he's always singing to mum. He's singing to this relationship he fucked up and uh, the great relationship of his life that he messed up. And, and he would get so drunk and then he'd sing like whale song. It'd sound like whale song. He'd go, you, you. And it was the saddest but the most romantic <laughs> freaking thing. And I would have loved it if he emoted off the piss at midday the next day, and I was like, Dad, what was that? You really love Mum, don't you? And it would been so wonderful if you had what Brendan's talking about, this ability to just go, you know what, man? I, I, I do love your mum, and I really fucked up. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I mean, his inability to emote and to kind of um, to share stuff, I mean, the best, some of the best nights, right? It's the funny thing about drink in the suburbs. Sometimes it was always you get the beautiful stuff. And I remember, as much as I remember holes in the wall and stuff, just, just touching your old man's cheek, cheek to cheek and the, the five o'clock shadow, and so freaking beautiful. Like, I would, I would kill for... He died like, of emphysema like seven years ago. Um, I'd kill to rub his freaking five o'clock shadow. Mm. And, uh, and the story I tell in, in that book is you know, the legacy, and, and it immediately came to me when Brendan was talking, the legacy of a brutal colonialism, the legacy of brutal war, and the legacy of um, brutal lives, and, um, and, and what they then do to all of us, to all of us still, you know. The damage. The damage, and the great tragedy of, of my old man's sort of stuff, the stoicism, you know, that kind of um, beautiful stoicism. I, I love that part about us as Australians, that we have all that, but we need to sort of really watch ourselves sometimes and go remember when we need to sort of just, as, as Brendan so beautifully said, just shed all that and just hug that freaking kid. As people told me on the street, they told me that on the street, do you hug your kid for 30 seconds? I was like, because wow, I don't. Were you not saying in the book that a hu- the average hug only goes for three seconds. Three seconds, three seconds. It's, it's animal-like. It's, um, so animals do things in three-second bouts, and we're just animals, and we do hugs in three-second bouts. And this guy just said, mate, increase the limit. Just keep <laughs> going. Just grab that kid and just don't let her go. But the thing about, you know, the, the tragic thing about, about my old man is, you know, um, I didn't really know when he was sort of going to die and stuff, and, and it's in the book, but, um, you know, my brother and I go up to... He dies. And my brother and I, he's in this housing commission flat at a place called Bribey Island, one hour north of Brisbane. And, uh, and we're sort of outside Dad's bedroom door. Dad's lying on the bed. You know, he died, died alone in this freaking crappy housing commission house, uh, flat. And uh, my oldest brother, Joel, goes in there, has some time. And I go, man, I can't do it. I can't, I can't go in there. And he does his time with him, comes back out. We sit down for like two hours at Dad's kitchen table with Dad's bedroom door closed, and we're just talking about Dad. And then, um, and then Joel goes, I, "I really think you should go in there. Um, I think it'll be really good." And uh, and it was typical, freaking brilliant advice from that beautiful man. And uh, and I open the door, go in, and I grab Dad and r- <laughs> rub my cheek against his five o'clock shadow, and uh, and the longest hug. I ever gave him was the hug I gave him when he was dead. And it should not be like that. Yeah. Um, Brendan, to come back to Plum, 
he does. Pete does go on this extraordinary emotional journey, doesn't he, in the novel, from being this kind of walled-off man, a little bit like your dad, who can't express, let alone articulate his emotions, to a man who's kind of broken open, who loves and isn't afraid to say that he loves, and a man who sees the ghosts of dead poets and a man who reads and writes poetry. How do you relate to his journey in the novel. I'm mean, sorry, I guess I'm asking, was writing it personal to you? Did you go on a bit of an emotional journey yourself? Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a great question. Um, I did, you know, I, I was at a, a time, as I was saying, I was trying to reclaim um, who my inner writer was, but I was kind of making a, a bit of a change in my life. Um, I kind of live life a certain way through my 20s and 30s. So anyone who's um, ever had a share house in Newtown probably saw me. Um, and um, and uh, shout out. Uh, and, um, you know, I wanted to make a change because everything was repeating itself um, and, I, and the only common denominator was me. And I started to think, hang on, everything kind of keeps end up being sabotaged and, and things seem to be going a certain way and... You know, I always worked really hard, and I and I was blessed with this kind of creativity. And um, but I wanted I wanted to feel stuff, and I wanted the chaos to stop. And and so I wanted to make a big change in my life. And 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 that's hard. And nothing changes if nothing changes. And you kind of can't chip away at change. You can't chisel away at change. You have to do a one eighty, and it hurts. Um, but it's only the kind of it's only when you kind of. Um, it's only the resistance to change, I think, that hurts because once you let it happen, it's natural um, and the onion skin peels and all the beautiful stuff starts to happen, but the resistance is painful. Um, and, and I think a lot, of, I was just thinking when Trent was talking and I think a lot of it to do with men is like is the fear of admitting that you don't know. You know, I think like my dad's generation, they always read to, said stuff to me like they got the email that no one else got. You know, yeah. this is how it is, son, and this is what it is, and this is how it is, and no, you just listen yes. to me. This is the way it bloody is, mate. You know, and then you hear them, they'll be voting tomorrow, a lot of them, you know, and, and, um, and I think there's something in men that I just want to say, you didn't get the email, no one got the email. None of us have the fucking email. None of us know what's going to happen. You know, we're all going to bloody die. You know, and we've got love and opportunity and kindness and stuff. And, 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 and let's admit that. Let's admit we don't know what the hell is going on on earth. But, God, we're trying and we've got each other. We've got connection. And, you know, I, I really wanted to make a change in my life. And so I was there for five months in my, you know, vermin-infested flat in Notting Hill, heartbroken, a bit lost, freezing. Um, I had the virus for about nine weeks and I wrote this book, and that's very, you know, that's very novelistic, um, being being a, a, a kind of writer in a basement in a time of a pandemic, you know, so it all worked. <laughs> but um, I, I thought, you know, I'm going to get this Peter Lum bloke. I'm going to get him there mm-hmm. and, it, and he's going to get me there. And, and I, I cried so much writing this book because I was just like, come on, mate, you can do this. Yeah. But he kept stumbling. He kept stumbling because I'm like, no, he can't get there yet. He fucking doesn't have it yet. And, uh, and so I, I found myself, in t- as we spoke about, you know, during the process, Catherine, of like really simple lines and I paired the writing of it back so much because I didn't need it, you know, and, and the vernacular was inside Peter Lum's vernacular and, and I just really wanted him to get there, especially with his relationships with women. I, I, I really wanted him to work out how to communicate with the women in his life and and to walk through the obstacles and maintain the relationships and and expose himself. Yeah. Um, and so I guess as I was changing and cleaning up my act and facing my demons, um, so was Peter Lum. Beautiful. And speaking of change, Trent, um, sitting on that street corner and hearing all of those beautiful, hard, difficult, sometimes painful yeah. stories from strangers uh, of love and then writing them down in this beautiful book... Mm. Has that changed you? Oh, I mean, forever, forever. Like, um, one of the best things I would kept on doing, and, and I talk about this a bit, you know, us fellas where, like, I've been with my wife, like, 22 years, and I think I only learned five years ago uh, the power of just coming up and going, 
I'm sorry, I fucked up. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was all me. I realise this now. Um, and that, that, coupled with what everyone was telling me, that thing is what ruins so many marriages and that happened so many times on that corner. And so many times, Catherine and I would come home and I'd just learn a bit more about how to be a better husband to my wife. And, and that, that's been really helpful. Um, but so much stuff I learned just about um, um, the glory in the small and mundane and, and, and if, you have, if you have 10 people in your life that you get to love, you are so freaking lucky. Some people have 30. Mm-hmm. Some people just have one. Some people have none. Some people only have a dog. Some people only have a cat. Um, we, we, we take this stuff wherever we can get it, and it is sacred. It is why we're here. It is absolutely why we're here, and we're searching and searching and searching every freaking day for meaning and purpose, and it's freaking 10 photo frames on your freaking mantelpiece. There's your meaning. And... and that two months really showed me that because every time people would come back and go, um, I really messed up when I was 32 with the love of my life and I lost all meaning um, and I'm 65 now and I wish I could go back and fix my mistakes. And, uh, and so when I go back to my wife and I go, I'm so sorry, I fucked up. Um, that, there's a power to that. And, uh, you know, things like that I learned um, and I learned... Just the brilliant thing, like, you know, I know this and we all know this, um, uh, to listen is the greatest act of love you can ever do. Um, and, and it was so wonderful to sit on that street and just freaking, like, really, like, you should have seen me listening. Like, I was a freaking puppy dog. Like, I was like, right, right. And I was, like, listening so hard, like, listening for Australia. And, uh, and, and, uh, and, and it was such a great to and froing, and it was so good to get out of friggin' Trent Boy Swallows Universe guy, all Ashenwing mm, Skies mm, guy. Mm, mm. I, I want to hear your you're the story, yeah. and it's like that was so wonderful. And I learned about that, and um, and and I just learned about how I need to fix some things too. Yeah, um, I think everyone in this room knows that books are um, like the most powerful agents of transformation possible. I mean, transformative in terms of both the writing of them, but in, they, they transform us when we read them. Um, Trent, I think you must have received hundreds of emails and letters from readers who have been touched by the stories or moved or changed in some way by the stories in love stories. Can you just tell us a couple, maybe one or two of the responses that have really stuck in your mind from uh, readers? Yeah, the, the, the ones that really, um, you know, the best, that, you know, just the best thing you can get is um, uh, I spoke to my dad last night for the first time in 30 years because I read love stories. Um, uh, on the flip side, something beautiful. Uh, uh, this, 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 this girl's uh, sitting reading love stories by um, Lake Burley Griffin, and uh, and and a bee, um, a bee flies along and lands on this particular passage about love. She goes, stares at the bee, stares at the bee. She's written me this letter. Right? She goes, Trent, I, you know, I stared at that bee, and uh, <laughs> and. Uh, and then she goes, you wouldn't believe. I met who I think is going to be the love of my life a day later. And guess what he loves doing? He's a beekeeper! <laughs> and, uh, you know, you just, uh, you know, just gold. And, uh, but, um, you know, but it's all the deep stuff. It's mm. all the deep stuff. It's always mm. been the deep stuff. It's like, oh, um, this brilliant lady, um, she goes, she goes, Trent, She's like, Trent, you bastard. Like, you, I love it when they go, like, you bastard. Like, it starts like, you bastard. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then it's like, I was over love. I was over it. And, uh, and, and uh, I was done. I was done with all these men. And, uh, and, uh, and I was done with love. And I read that. Like, I sound like a wanker talking about my own book. I'm sorry. But it's like, <laughs> but these are, I, I love stories. So, um, and then she said, I was over love. 
I read that book and I have decided to let the fucker back in. <laughs> I thought that letter, that was it, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And, and Brendan, too, I know that so many people have loved your novel, um, you know, from Asha Ketty to Tara June Winch to Andrew Johns, you know, it's like men, women, kid, like young, young guys love it. What were some of the responses that you've gotten from readers that surprised you? And the man sitting in the chair has just been an incredible advocate of the book as well. Yeah, loved it. Telly loved it. And how much he liked it. I didn't, um, yeah, I, I did not pay for that, um, just so everybody <laughs> uh, knows. But, um, yeah, it's it's been amazing really. And, yeah, similar to Trent, but a lot of guys going, mate, I, I hadn't read a book since year 10. Um, <laughs> and, you know, my, my, my uh, sister-in-law gave me this and, um, some of the Cronulla Shark stuff was a bit much, but, uh, yeah, it was, I, I, you know, or or they'll say it got a bit full on in part. I found it a bit full on. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, and then they said, have you got any other books like it? And I said, oh, yeah, Brandon Jack's. I said, Brandon Jack's got a new book out. Trent Dalton's got a book you might like. And, and that's what I loved. It's like, you know, there might be some blokes who, who might go and read another book now and, um, you know, really, really beautiful stuff. And, you know, when I was in Cronulla at the best little bookshop on Cronulla Street, and which I kind of called the, um, you know, kind of the home ground of the book, um, I went down there and did a signing and because um, they haven't been able to have much contact with the reader and it seems to be still cursed. And, um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of women came into the bookshop in Cronulla and said that their husband had played footy and had head knocks and, they'd had a, have a bit of a cry and, and, and I'd stand up and have a chat to them about what I researched and stuff. So I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of that in there for the healing of relationships to do with concussion um, as well. But, uh, yeah, it, it's been incredible in that way. And, and I think the book, you know, when I handed you the book, which I think was called Impact Player, it was kind of, you know, it was a, it was a hot mess. But um, the, you meet a lot of people in this industry who read your screenplay and, they approach it with fear um, of like, oh, where could this go wrong? Where could this TV show, this film go wrong? And Catherine Milne, I just want to say, is a very rare thing and she takes what you've written and and looks at what it could be. She like tosses it up in the air and goes, what could it be? And that is just magic for a writer. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Thank you. I just thought I want to get each of you to read, do a little bit of reading, um, Trent, from your books. Trent, I'm going to ask you to go first and do a tiny bit of reading from one of my favourite chapters, which is A Letter to Joni, which is, of course, <laughs> the beautiful Joni Mitchell. <laughs> um, this, I don't know if you remember, the very last thing I just said was this idea that I have to fix some things. It's funny that Catherine's just handing me this. Um, in you know that everything comes at a cost and and i think i could have worked harder at a particular relationship that is so freaking important to me but i i kind of gave the past 4 years to books and and it kills me because i kind of let something really really important slip um and i wrote to Joni Mitchell about it <laughs> uh Joni Why do do you think they gave us love? Who's they? The masters of the universe, the forces of evolution, God, whatever you want to call it. Oh, they. They gave us something, something so truly beautiful, but it's also something that causes us so much pain and confusion. Well, they had to give us something to do. We couldn't just watch Tiger King the whole time. (laughs) And then you said two simple words, Joni. Both sides, you said. Both sides? The low side and the high side of love, you said. You're on the low side of love, but that's still love all the same. And maybe you're lucky to have held a kind of love that makes you feel so low. Some folks feel no side of love at all. And then you gave, me a, you gave my shoulder a warm and gentle punch, Joni. Look, cheer up, buttercup, you said. You've got more love stories to hear on that corner of yours. All those beautiful strangers you keep talking to, they know the answer as well as you do. They know how to get that love back. How? Just do the work. And then you said, better swish, jellyfish. And then you skated away. 
<laughs> Thank you. It's lovely to read that. Thank you. It was great. I love it. Do the work. Just do the Just work. Do the work. Yeah. yeah. Um, and talk about working. Um, like most things in life, love has to be hard won. You know, we have to do the work. And Plum realises this by the end of the novel. So he has to go through this darkness in himself, this shame, this loss, before he drags himself up and understands what love is and what it requires of him. I'd love you just to talk to that a little bit and maybe read a little bit of one of Plum's poems that he says close to the end of the novel. Would you do that? Oh, yes. Yeah. Should, I, should I just read it? Yes, do it. Okay. I'll just read the end of this poem, Plum. I am a lock forward, a number 13. I am an athlete, a machine. I confess I am a lover, I am a brother. I am a father and I am a son. I am a winner, the only number is one. I confess I am a failure. I am an alcoholic, the secret is within. I confess I took the line on, I confess I have a tough gin. But the real collisions, the ones of the heart, from them, I ran time and time again, yellow card, for there's a coward deep within. And that's why it was easier to take the line on than take this life on. Head knocks for heart knocks. What truly knocks your head around is what your heart leaves behind. God. Whoa, whoa. I just wish you were here, Brendan, truly. <laughs> Look, um, we are going to... I, I, I do... Do people want to ask questions? Oh, keep talking? Oh, God, we could keep talking, you know, for some time. Yeah, but, but it's the last session, so we can go on. If, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I would love to talk about craft uh, just for a little bit. Um, Brendan, how does writing books like for fiction how does that differ from all the other mediums you work in and how does your work as an actor and a poet and a playwright feed into your novel writing uh, that's a good question um i think the the great thing about uh writing um a, a book is uh is the word stuff um you know all the other stuff is very much about what you see um, and you have a lot of voices in on television and film very early and demographics and time slots and um, locations and budgets and stuff, and that's fun and you have lots of revisions and it's very collaborative and um, whereas writing a book is just incredibly lonely and I, and, and I love that. And I, I also find that with writing a book um, you can't do anything else uh, and I seem to be able to juggle about six or seven things in my life um, and they all seem to just work and, and I've been able to do it, you know, somehow. And it just comes in with a deadline and then a, and a play and things just move and I just trust it. Um, but every now and again in my life, like with how it feels, I kind of took three years off um, and I needed to to kind of work out why, you know, people from my past had died, why, why this suicide was a thing and where did I sit within that journey and, and with Plum, when that time came up, I thought this is novel time, you know, because I could get back to what it was just to be a writer, to just write for the sake of writing. Um, but in saying that, this is probably the first time I didn't follow my nose and, and I put the, the chapters up on the wall and I had lots of arrows going and I had, you know, 300 words for that bit of story, 500 words for that. And I'm like, I'm not going over the top because... I can really write words when I get going, you know, as you found out. So, um, but this this is just such a great medium because with word, plum, and the plum is his brain. You know, it's soft with a hard nut in the middle. There's all this succulent flavour, but there's a fucking stone in the middle. And I wanted people to get into Peter Lum's fear, you know, to this big, tough guy, but he's he's got the biggest heart and he's so afraid and using words 
um, like no other medium, using words you can bring the reader through nine and a half hours or whatever it takes to read this book, I can bring them into that man's experience and they might end up empathising with a guy they would normally have judged or thought of as two-dimensional. But you can see that a lot of bad behaviour that comes out of these men is an eight-year-old terrified boy without skills to do life with a living problem and an emotions problem. Uh, so that, that's the beauty of it is to bring the, bring the reader right in close um, to the mind of the protagonist. Yeah, yeah. And I think also what comes through in the novel so strongly is, is the command of the vernacular that you've got. It's the beats, it's the rhythm, it's the way he talks. Did you talk some of... Did you talk the novel <laughs> to yourself? <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and um, I had a window onto Westbourne Park Road and I, I think watching me write is, is very strange. But we're used to people gesturing now because they've got their, their, their earbuds. But, um, yeah, I, I grew up with these men, you know, and my friends, you know, three of my best mates still live in Cronulla and, and my uncle and my family, and and so this is you know, and I, I that's who I kind of um, you know grew up with, and and who still stand by my side. So these people are in my life, and as you can tell, I haven't really lost the vernacular. So I, I think I am Peter Lum in a lot of ways. <laughs> you know, so. But I'm sorry, um, did not Peter in Lum, your novel Walt Whitman said Peter Lum, you are love. So there you yeah. go. There you go. Well, that, that, that was your fault because you suggested <laughs> Walt Whitman come in and teach yeah. him about embracing, which was yeah, um, so perfect at that time in the multitudes, book. Multitudes, multitudes. Multitudes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and Trent, when you sat down at that street corner and you talked to over 200 people, mm. and I don't know quite physically how you did it, like you transcribed or you recorded them. Yeah, yeah. When you came back and you sat at your desk and you had to synthesise, you know, conversations of 200 people over two months, did you ever think, oh, my God, what have I done? Have I bitten <laughs> off more than I could chew? Oh, hell yeah. And uh, can I just ask, is, is anyone, I don't want anyone to sort of reveal themselves how old they might be, but has anyone kind of ever used kind of an old Olivetti typewriter for work or whatever? <laughs> it's really hard to write. Yeah. Like, man, hats off to, like, Hemingway and all those people who were like, dunk, 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 really hard. And uh, so I found, I found on that corner um, the best thing I did. I was writing a bit of poetry. I was, I was observing chip packets floating across the street. I was looking at clouds in the sky and I was looking at lovers kiss. And that's the stuff I'd write down on the typewriter. And I had my recorder there to do the, you know, the one-on-one -on -one chats. And then I did. I took them all home, transcribed them all. And for me, the biggest thing was, where's my through line? You know, where is the story here? And, um, and, and I, was, I was worried. The thing I worried about, I knew that, because I, I, I've just done a lot of that type of journalism before. Uh, like I've made a career out of just dead set, walking the streets, talking mm. to strangers. And um, so this was right up my alley. Um, but I was worried about how am I going to find the through line? And, but it's so wonderful what the universe throws back at you if you're willing to, to be vulnerable. And they'll throw some characters at you, you know, like... It's really vulnerable being out on the corner. I remember this guy walking past and he saw my sign and he goes, he was like hopped up on something. Like he was, he was really wide on something and he just goes, love stories? I'll give you a love story. How about I drive your head into the fucking concrete? <laughs> I, was just like, I was just like, mate, I just want your love story. And uh, you know, stuff like that. But, but you know that that's just mm -hmm. gold as well and that's all help on the story. But then you've got a guy like Ruben, right? It comes in and tells you a story about how He's got these gold flecks on, on his teeth. And uh, he says, I get down sometimes, Trent, I get down. And, uh, and, and he says, but all I do, man, I, I, I look in the mirror and I see these, these gold flecks and they're gold from my dead grandparents' wedding rings. And I, I fix them to my teeth um, because every time I look into the mirror, um, I think of them and it makes me smile. And I don't get down anymore, Trent. And then he says, you've got to buy a sponsor kit for this kid in Uganda named Eric. And I'm like, man, I don't want to give you my credit card details. <laughs> I know about your gold flex, but I don't want to hand you my credit card details. We don't know each other that well. And he talks to me for another hour and I go, damn it, give me that package on Eric. And suddenly you've got a sort of a through line about my journey with Ruben and 
Eric. And then suddenly I'm learning stuff about myself. And then I'm, you know, like always going home and begging my wife saying, hey, do you mind if I tell them that story about my left shoe? You know, that one, how we sort of raise our left shoe because it sounds like I love you when we're at a party, because that reminded me of a story. I was reminded by that by these two lovers who work in the Maya Centre and, and they look at each other from 100 metres across the shopping centre and they do I love you symbols. And, and, uh, and then, and then you know, I have a big discussion with my wife about, about, about the meaning of stories and the, the sacred nature of our own stories. And, um, and then in the end, she decides to write her own love story herself. And it's like, I'll just do you a freaking love story. And it's the best love story in the whole freaking book. <laughs> and suddenly you've got a through line. And, and it's like, that, that was the cool part about that is, I, yeah, had all the stories, but where is it all going to fit together? And then finding that through line. And, and the coolest thing was I found the through, through line through the person I love most in this world. Oh, get out. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, sorry, I know it's beautiful. Cheesy, it's cheesy, but yeah. So. Oh, and I want to ask about that as well. Oh, there are so many things I want to talk about. Uh, we will throw to questions in a minute, and if, honestly, if you don't have any, that's fine. We've got more than enough. But I want to talk for a moment about the power of optimism, about the power of yes. One of the most beautiful stories in Love Story is about a proposal, so Paul wants to propose to his partner, Victor, but he's not doing it in private or in an intimate restaurant. He's doing instead this beautiful, chaotic, very public proposal, marriage proposal, with a flash mob in a very busy, you know, New Farm Park, 8am <laughs> on Saturday, 20 dancers to the sound of a song called Marry Me by Jason Derulo. <laughs> and, you know, hundreds of people gather around and Paul asks Victor to marry him. Victor whispers yes and then he shouts yes. And the whole crowd hoots and hollers and shouts yes because we all know what that feels like, right? You know, that moment of um, just feeling so great and in the, in the moment and that is the power of yes. So, Trent, you know, like, firstly... Um, my question to you is how important is optimism to you, that power of the big-hearted yes to life? <laughs> oh, I mean, you couldn't ask a more, yeah, like, uh, can I, I'm sorry, to, and Brendan, I'm so sorry if this goes d deep, I'm so sorry in, uh, in advance, this goes too deep for a Friday night, but, um, like, I just need to say this, and, uh, like, yeah, okay, I'm going to go there, um, like, I get a lot of shit for like this, all of this, you know, this annoying fucking exuberance or whatever it is, and and this optimism or this positivity and this this stuff that I put in my books. And I copped a bit of shit this week, and and someone someone linked my optimism, someone linked my optimism to Morrison government politics. <laughs> I'm just saying. And, and, I, and I was just like, I did, you know, this crushed me, crushed. And I wanted to just, I wanted to call the person and just say, like, can I just please just delicately explain to you, and this is what, like, honestly, like, this is what I wanted to say, so I'll just say it. Um, my light comes from such dark, like, so don't be fooled. Um, my mum is the size of Kylie Minogue. The wind would blow her over. Nothing can keep her down. When I was around 12 years old, uh, she was strangled by a man who professed to love her, and he left her for dead in a Telstra phone box by herself in a city where her four sons were not in. And she was so lonely. She had told the state about her situation and her pleas for help were ignored. The police that she went to told her to try to be less agitative to the man who eventually strangled her. The only thing that kept her alive and got her through that shit was optimism, otherwise known as hope, otherwise known as love for her four sons. That shit has nothing to do with politics. The stuff I put in 
two fiction books, Boy Swallows Universe and All Our Shimmering Skies, come from that. They also come, this is the places they come from, and this is where this freaking optimism stuff comes from. They come from four boys, four sons, the Dalton boys, Joel, Ben, Jesse, Trent. Each holding one limb of this psychopath monster who did the strangling, down, one on one arm, one on this arm, one on a leg, one on a leg, waiting, waiting, waiting for the police to arrive. The police arrive, my mum goes to a domestic violence shelter, and the four Dalton boys hop on the train, and they go to Brackenridge to their dad's house. And on that train, the youngest brother, Trent, cries his fucking eyes out. And the only thing <laughs> that makes him stop crying is the optimism and humour of his older brothers who make him laugh so hard that he stops crying. Mm. And I just wanted to tell you that, that if you're ever reading anything of mine, it's not fucking politics. <laughs> it's not. It will never be. Or if it is, I'll tell you about it. Um, I'm sorry to go deep, but that's just like, that's, optim that's, where, it, that's where the optimism comes from. Thank you. Sorry to go deep. I'm sorry. I just had to say it. And Brendan, you are a, a big, generous-hearted man too. Like, what, what I is... I am Scott Morris. <laughs> <laughs> Proud. Well, I mean, hopefully tomorrow I'll be the number one shark ticket holder. <laughs> Come on! Yes. Yeah. So there it's is optimism right it, there. I was there from the start. I it's blamed so for them when I was four. This guy just comes in to look working class. I'm the real shark. <laughs> <laughs> I thank you for that. That was just beautiful honesty, mate. I just love that. Thank you. Um, I feel it. Yeah. Do you want to talk about optimism? <laughs> or are you, are you, are you done now? <laughs> I just want to introduce everyone to my yes. alpaca. Yes. Um, this is Kerry. Kerry. Look, I'm sorry, ladies Kerry. and gentlemen. He's been in ISO too long. <laughs> That's Kerry, Kerry alpaca. <laughs> um, I've got another one called Jamie. He's more little. Um, but yeah, I'm lonely. <laughs> um, no, uh, but I'm but I'm optimistic. No, how can you not? You know, we're at the Sydney Writers Festival. That's optimistic right away. The fact yeah. everyone's connecting with books and getting together and talking about ideas. You know, because we live in a reductive society now, where everything's getting smaller and judgmental, and we need to expand. Band, you know what I mean? We need to question. We need to have rigorous debate and get together and talk about what happened when we read each other's books and, um, you know, and people should be writing books. People in this audience should be writing books and, and, and not worrying about what all those dickheads... <laughs> yeah, even so this is, this is optimism in this room, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. argue, discuss. This is yeah. it, the festival yeah. of it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Well said. Yeah. Okay. Now, really, we are going to go to questions now. We have two mics up on either side. If anyone wants to ask a question, come down and... Yes. Oh, my God, we've got a question. Yay. Thank you so much. That's so brave. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, guys. I was just tearing up there. So... <laughs> Um, Thank you. Trent's story, it's beautiful. So I appreciate you being here. I'm coming down. I'm coming down. I'm coming down. <laughs> <laughs> coming down. You're a legend. Thank uh, you. I needed that oh too. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So just thank you for being so brave and vulnerable, um, as men particularly, and the stories that you write and um, the way that you, yeah, <laughs> even even Kerry Alpaca. <laughs> Um, just, yeah, the way that you bring out that vulnerability and braveness. And so I just wanted to ask, how can we help our um, generations of men, especially ones that, that are your age and yeah. my parents' generation, you know, that sort of older male, to sort of tap into that vulnerability and that braveness um, to, to find their emotion? I know that you've written about it, but how can, what are some practical things that we could do, some solutions? That would oh, be amazing. That's, <laughs> that's a beautiful question. Um, absolutely 
um, I believe, reward, reward their wonder because it comes from the same place. When they say, Mum, I turned this thing into a butterfly, that's, that's the place. You know what I mean? I, I think it all exists in the same place. Um, but we're so, um, I'm, so... My wife and I are so amazed with the boys that are around my... The boys that are hanging around my daughters. <laughs> but there's this one kid. This one kid asked my daughter to, like, come to sushi. And... And, and my daughter said, they went to sushi, <laughs> and my daughter just went like, um, I just, they were, like, she was so comfortable, right? She was so comfortable in the space with this kid. Oh, his parents had raised this kid so beautiful to make her feel so comfortable that she was able to go, hey, I just want you to know um, I just want to be friends. This isn't going to go anywhere further. Like, these kids are like 14 at the time. And, uh, and I just thought that is amazing because if that was me, Back when I was like 14 or something, or you know, it, we would have gone on and on and on, and not knowing sort of, you know. And I just think the whatever, like this next generation coming through are so good with their emotions, and um, but yeah, accessing and uh, that that place, it, it comes from it, it is those. It comes from the beautiful stuff, music, books. You know what I mean? It doesn't come from numbers. It comes from the stuff, the stuff we can't explain like the sixth sense, which isn't anything spooky, it's something called the soul. And, uh, and, you, and it's really important, I think, to find those parts of our own kids, the soul parts, and, and really enhance them when they're, when they're opening them up. Brendan, did you hear the question okay? Would you like to respond as well? Yeah, they, they also typed it for me in the chat, oh, which is so very good. nice. Um, that's where we're at. Um, thank you, Sydney's Writers' Festival. Production. Um, no, I, I think it's, you know, I, I don't have any kids or anything, but I've always loved talking to um, young men and, and I think it's about kind of getting on their level no matter what age they are and being where they're at and, and kind of back to my point of not knowing. Um, I think it, it's great to kind of communicate with children by not knowing as much as they do about their world um, and asking them to teach you about what they know. Because um, I, I learn much from I, I learn um, so much from from that, and and I know that you know, like when I when I was at, at high school and the drama teacher came in and um, you know and he just kind of saw me um, and he saw what was going on for me and he validated it, this about it, and that's when I came to life when I was kind of seen by a man. Um, when a big hairy man saw me, saw I was beautiful and then said, show me it, show me you, I want to learn about you. And that was just, that's what brought me to life. Beautiful. Thank you. I, I, we could maybe have just one more question. If anyone's, does anyone have one more <coughs> question? No? I just want to say, um, I cried a river, Trent, and I nearly pissed my pants laughing, Brendan. <laughs> it, it, so it takes everything. It's got it. everything this night. That's good. Um, so my friend and I, we're actually English, high school English teachers, and we always try to teach students about craft. I just want to know from both of you, what do you think is the most fitting metaphor for life? Oh, get out. Beautiful question. Yeah. Oh, no. And I don't know what's happened there, but please don't transcribe the pissing my pants part. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan, do you want to take first crack at that? What's the metaphor? What's the metaphor for life? What's the best metaphor for life? Oh, Is it a game of I, rugby? Can Trent, can Trent go? Um, <laughs> no, I, I, <laughs> um, oh, look, the best metaphor um, for life. I mean, this is basically being asked the meaning of life, isn't it? I mean, I, I've, I've got, I've got no, I've got no idea. Come, I'll, I'm going to phone a friend. Come back I'll, to me for a second. I'm going to talk to Kerry. <laughs> I think that's life, kind of the best. Life is an, you know, there. life is an alpaca. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you think that the alpaca is um, an odd. Animal and like, unlike the llama who can carry stock across Europe, and and the camel that can carry people, there's three cardigans in an alpaca every year, and that should not be underestimated. Thank you very much. <laughs> He's going. 
it. Mic drop. Oh, no. <laughs> and Trent. You're amazing. Um, <laughs> this night is... Can we not go home? Can we just... Um, I will give you a, a, a slice of um, Slim Halliday old porridge wisdom. Um, so, so you can tell the English kids this comes from a guy who spent 30 years in a slammer. So tell them they'll love it. Um, do your time before time does you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, if I was Julia Baird, I would have been sort of like drummed out of the ABC by now for going over time, so I'm really sorry. But can I just say, this has been such a pleasure to be part of. You have been a wonderful audience. Can you please thank Brendan and Trent for such a beautiful evening? Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel. <laughs>